Welcome. Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast, where every Friday we talk with some of the fastest and, in this case, the most interesting people in the sport. I think we're going to hit a home run with most interesting people in the sport today, as now I am speaking with the originator of the famous Barkley Marathons and the Backyard Ultras. You know who I am speaking with, Lazarus Lake a.k.a. Gary Cantrell, or the other way around. Welcome, Laz. Well, good morning. Well, it's good to talk with you. And I'm going to put this out there again as a postulate for the rest of this podcast. I think you have changed the sport of ultra running forever, single-handedly. I think you've had an extraordinary impact on the sport. And we're going to get into that. Let's... uh, Let's start with the famous Barkley Marathons. My gosh. So in your words, <laughs> what is the Barkley? Well, as we said, uh, it's just good, clean, fun, except it's not that clean and it's not always fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one is going to argue with that assessment, I don't think. Well, for I think almost everyone knows, but it's supposedly five 20-mile loops, although I don't think they are 20 miles. I think they're a little longer, but that's the nature of the Barkley. Um, No GPSs are allowed. You have this very idiosyncratic approach where uh, not that many people can get in. It's hard to figure out how to get in. It's hard to figure out even when it starts. Come to think of it, I don't know when it starts. Would it be appropriate to ask you when it starts this year, or is that uh, too keptly closely held of a secret. Oh, no, it's it's public knowledge that it will start one hour after the conch sounds. Okay, but <laughs> the particular date of that conch sounding is not uh, exactly on this big, splashy website, <laughs> is it? No, we, uh, we, we try to operate as quietly as we can because otherwise – you end up with spectators, and there is it is not a spectator event. It's right, right. No, you keep it pretty tight. <laughs> we try. <laughs> try. Well, speaking of which, how many movies? Isn't there like three movies? I, I get it mixed up. How many movies have been made on the Barkley? You know, I don't really know. There's there are several. And then you've got to define what constitutes a movie. Lots of people have made uh, little pieces about their experience. We'll have some media up there next year. It's kind of a uh, compensation to the public at large that it's not a spectator event. So that gives people a chance to. To, to satisfy their urge to know what's going on, kind of like watching a train wreck. <laughs> well, that's that's a pretty good metaphor. I think uh, a, 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 how many Barkley stories are there? Hundreds, thousands. <laughs> but I think Gary Robbins collapsing across the finish line uh, six seconds after, you know, 60 hours, 60 seconds after 60 hours, but coming in from the wrong direction. I'm not, what adjective do we put on this? 
at the time it was just really sad it uh, and it's still really sad it's just but that's uh that's sports if you don't have tragedy you don't have <laughs> you don't have joy and the uh, that's a good point. Barkley has a lot more joy than most because it has a lot more tragedy than most. <laughs> that's that's true. Uh, without consequence, what's happening really? Um, there's a lot of races where they're really trying to get you to the finish line, right? <laughs> they just go all out, say, okay, everyone's got to finish. We'll, we'll shepherd you there. And, of course, the aid stations are like – Next level. I, I could just eat every meal at these aid stations, but not so much the Barkley. Uh, the it has this famously, famously low finish rate. So you're not really trying to get people to the finish line. What what could we ask? Are you trying to do? Is that a fair question? Um, it's a chance for people to separate themselves, especially today from just being connected and be alone out in the wilderness and re totally relying on yourself. It's, it's uh, really in recent years become a, a rarity and people, some people really struggle with disconnecting from all their devices and, and being completely cut off. There's often been a push to put trackers on the runners and they say, well, you set them where the runners can't look at it to see where they are, but we can watch them from camp. But even that is connection. When you when you leave the starting line at the Barkley and head out in the woods, you are disconnected from everything. Assuming that someone would ever come look for you, they'll have to locate you. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Well, I think I forgot what year it was when uh, I think it was Dan Baglione. He wandered off and and I no one found him. I think he finally wandered back 23 hours later, wasn't it? He was he went out and he passed the book checkpoint at two miles and never reached the next one. And he was gone for 32 hours. <laughs> and we we were actually in the process of putting together a search when he came back into camp. He had wandered out of the park and off the map and was trying to identify, figure out his location with things that were on the map because he wasn't aware he had wandered off of the map. So it's real trouble with your route finding by map if you wander off the map. He ended up being found by a couple of guys that were just up in the mountains in their recreational vehicle in another part of the mountains. And they they took him, brought him out, and they went and ate breakfast. And he just didn't he didn't think to call the park and say, I'm okay. So he ended up taking thirty-two hours to officially cover two miles when he we were standing there, everybody hustling and bustling around and, and getting ready to start the process of a search. And uh, he came walking up behind me and said, what's going on? 
What's all the excitement? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a search for you. <laughs> okay. Well, I think uh, we'll, we'll make note of this. This could be a record. 32 hours for two miles. Yeah, 16 hour I'm, miles. I'm, I, think I'm gl- I think I'm glad to hear yeah, 16 hour miles. Uh, yeah, that's a slow pace. Um, but I think I'm happy to hear that you were going to go look for him. I hadn't quite done it yet, but you were, you were gearing up to do a search. Oh, we'll probably so, eventually uh, search. Listeners, if, you, if you're going to get lost... You you would have eventually. Okay, so all all hope is not lost. Uh, well, when you started this way back then, I, I remember when you started it. I thought, and please let me know if I'm misconception here. I thought you were kind of thumbing your nose a little bit, a little bit of ironic take at the community that seemed to embrace suffering, sort of for the sake of <laughs> suffering. You know, like suffering was a good thing. And you kind of like, yeah, you like suffering? Try this. You know, sort of this in-your-face aspect to it. Am I incorrect on that? Um, it was just trying to introduce a genuine trail run to trail running because trail running, as it is practiced here, is mostly path running. It's not trail running. It's what... I thought I was a trail from all my years in the in the woods. You used a map and you patched together routes that used uh, div- hell anything from animal trails to to old logging roads and, and and to get from one place to another. It was actually a privileged position within the the Boy Scouts that where I really started my backpacking and camping that they would take us and we were just kids and we'd take a map and figure out how did they, they would pick a place. And those of us who were pretty proficient would let us out to find our own way to where we were camping. It might be five or 10 miles away. And I can remember You'd have to do things like look at the Cumberland Escarpment, which is essentially a 200-foot rock wall that runs all the way from Alabama to Pennsylvania, and figure out from looking at the map where would be a place we can get up that. And uh, so my thinking of trails when people were doing trail runs and and doing six hour, 50 milers and stuff. I thought, how the hell could you do that on a trail? <laughs> so <laughs> we, we just introduced real trails to trail running. Gotcha. <laughs> Which is your conception of what it was supposed to be. Which is, yeah, that's, that's of course, trail running. It's like good, clean fun. It doesn't involve that much running and not everyone can see the trail. You have to practice your eye. I gotcha. Very good. Practice your eye. Okay. Well, how about the idios? That's a good explanation. I appreciate that. What about the idiosyncratic aspects? The dollar sixty entry fee, the license plate. Was this 
in re- direct reaction to the hullabaloo, the, <laughs> and the big show of the other races, or is that just your personality style? It was it was just uh, just an amusing thing. The dollar sixty was at that time the race fees were really rocketing up, and and kind of a standard became a, a dollar a mile. The really expensive races were a dollar a mile. And which they're a little bit more than that now. And uh, so we made it a penny a mile. And then since there's a hundred miler and a sixty miler, we charged a dollar and sixty cents. So we you know, the the smarter runners would have figured out that they were being charged twice for the same miles. <laughs> See. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> gotcha. All right. Those are, there, uh, it's an old cliche. One could say there's a method to your madness. <laughs> there's a reason for everything. And, and things just kind of build up over time. You, you come along there with the license plates. That was something that's been quite a few years ago now. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. We always have some obscure item as part of the entry fee and we thought it would be fun to get a home plate because people came from all over get a home a license plate from their home state or country and then when we got them we thought i'd be fun we'd hang them outside a camp and we sat there and looked at it and said oh that's really cool if we kept doing that well, if you keep doing that, you have hundreds and hundreds of plates eventually, and you have to go up a day early just to hang them all up. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, phase that one out. Well, no, we're still doing it. We haven't figured out a good way to phase it out. the The license plate display is really impressive. <laughs> Indeed. Gotcha. I like it. So there is indeed a reason for everything. It's not just random. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Well, here's uh, <clears throat> so Barkley, as I mentioned at the start, has achieved this what's the word? Not quite mythical status, but epic status in that it truly epitomizes one aspect of the sport, which is testing the limits of human endurance. I mean, it's it, people aren't really going for speed. They're not. They're certainly not taking selfies out of the course. It's really been boiled down to you know literally the limits of human endurances. Is that though how you see it? That's how other people I think see it. But how do you see this event? It is. It is supposed to be a one percent race, and it's really a one percent of one percent because. The, the people that are entered are, if not necessarily the fastest, they're very experienced, very ex- exceptional runners. They have a gamut of skills. You see a lot of people with mount, alpine climbing background, a lot of orienteers and, and what is it, Rogaine? That's kind of a mix of... Although it's not any of those things, there's a prescribed route, but you have to find it yourself. And so we get collect a bunch of really good runners and 
uh, backwoods athletes and put them with a test where it's designed so that hopefully only about 1% will finish. And since you only have 40 runners, a 1% finish means that you won't necessarily have a finisher every year. Hmm. That's just, well, <laughs> that's very good math. Wow. Thank you. See, well, here we go. You, there's a method to the madness, a reason for everything. I, I got that. But you're right. So that's every once every two and a half years, someone might finish, so to speak, <laughs> twice every five years. Okay. And now the last person, however, was John Kelly. And that was a while ago. That was 2017. So, and you famously make the course a little harder uh, when people are achieving a little bit of success. So has the course become too hard or do you think someone else can still finish? No, we, we change the course slightly every year so that it's always new. No one can get out there and from having run it before memorize it all. Of course, the park is of a limited size. So some sections of it have stayed for years and years and we, We'll make some alterations and some changes every year so that everyone has to be on, on the alert the whole time. And it doesn't necessarily get harder or easier. You're really looking to put it in pretty much the same place. The biggest reason we haven't had anyone finish is, is the concept of a pipeline that there's there's a pipeline of potential finishers once in a long while someone comes out and finishes the first try but most of the time it takes multiple attempts and we do sit and look at the at the field every year before the race has started and and you can kind of pinpoint people that you've watched them. They come and they make an attempt and they fail. They make mistakes or get caught, caught with something they're not prepared for. And they, the, the Barker is not the person that says, well, this is just unfair and unjust. They say, I've got to get better. And they go home and, and they alter their training, they alter their preparation, and they maybe even develop or improve different skills, and they come back and try it again. We've got we, – we had that period where that we had finishers like three or four years in a row. And the reason that we had them is those people had been in the pipeline for quite a while. And – so they each finish. Most people, when they finish once, if they come back to try again, it's it's a terrible disaster because you have to have a mindset that's so so intense. Uh, one of the runners said it best. He said, "I remembered that I could do it, but I forgot how hard it really was." And so we've got we've got new guys in the pipeline and there's some really good really good runners that'll be taking it on this year and I think hey we've got a possibility of a finisher. I would say the weather has to cooperate <laughs> but we've had finishers in some of the worst weather years. 
it, it just it's a matter that things have to work out for them. Right. The last few years, there has been some bad weather. Yeah. A 65 degree drop in temperature during the, the second loop or either the second or third. I can't even remember which. I think it was the second loop. 65 degree drop. They left. It was 80 degrees and sunny. And by the time they were coming around on the far side, ready to make the turn towards camp, they were, it was 15 degrees with 30 mile an hour winds and they were in snow up over their ankles. That's going to be a hard day or night. That's hard for your body to adjust to. (laughs) Well, I did ask Jared uh, a year or so ago, okay, Jared, does the course become too hard? Can someone still do it? He said, without hesitation, yes, no doubt. So he certainly confirms your approach there. Uh, interesting. I like it. One percent in the pipeline. That's a very interesting term because you do see a little history of mentors. You know, like there is, uh, well, Brett Mowney and then Jared. And Jared kind of worked with John Kelly a little bit. You know, so people start following an experienced person for the first few laps. Last year, Jared went with Luke Nelson for a while. They were the last people standing. So there's also kind of a mentorship that happens, isn't there? It's um, the Barkley is is a is achievable now by a combination of of um, community knowledge and then the awareness that it is possible. The the skill sets that are involved or the combination of skills. You didn't have people the in the first years of Barkley that that had put all those pieces together. And every time that that human humans approach a problem collectively, and there's almost like a a a ge- genetic corporate. Uh, knowledge that develops over time. The people now are are very good at it. And then there's some other races that have come up around the world that have a similar, you can't really make a Barkley somewhere else because it's particular to the environment where it is. Those those rugged mountains in, in uh, East Tennessee and the, the forests and, and everything are, are unique. And they have one in France. Well, the Alps are much bigger and, and much more impressive. You have to have a very different race because it's tailored to that area. But the concept of throwing people out there by themselves, that's the, that's the real core of it. And so they, they get better from combining that knowledge but when they're out there they have to apply it entirely out of their own head if this really even stays with the point that you you were asking about and then the other side is the belief it can be done Uh, no one really people were inching up into the fourth loop when Mark Williams came and finished the whole thing and he just he came and he believed it could be done, and, and conditions worked out, and and he was one of the one of the rare people to do it his first attempt. 
and he never he never made it again after that one but he was he was mentally and physically prepared and the pieces fell into place and he got it done after that then you know there's going to be more because people understand it can be done it's the four minute mile yeah it changes your concept of what's possible Hmm. 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 Well, I think I'm pondering this, Laz. That's very interesting because again, we have this irreverency of the license plate, the dollar sixty entry fee. You can't figure out how to enter it anyway. Versus this very hardcore purist testing of the limits of human endurance and human spirit. We could say as well. I think rather than endurance, I think that's more like spirit, in my opinion. Because when, you know, I, I was a little dismissive, to be honest. I said, I don't want to go and get my legs all scratched up and you know, I, I don't want to do this. But then my friend Jared, as you know, really got into it. And, you know, he, he, he turned me around completely. So I really got the message <laughs> then. And I realized that when he goes into that, he's at another level. And it's not, there's no decision about whether to continue or not. If you have to make a decision you're not going to do it. <laughs> so the, the people have completed it. That decision has been removed from their level of commitment, which in my opinion is, is dramatic. That's, that's a remarkable breakthrough in how one approaches anything. They, the people who are going to finish, you have a good idea who they might be the day before because they have, they have that thousand mile stare. They're there, but they're not there. They have, <laughs> they have come with such an intense focus on what they're going to do that they're just biding time. They're just waiting on the cock to sound so that they can, so that it's game time. It's, it's a really, it's a common thing to mm. every sport. I think John- to, to the frame of mind that it takes to compete at the highest level. Um, it doesn't matter if you're playing high school football or running the Barkley. If you, to really succeed, you have to find that place in your head where that you are so intensely focused on what you're doing that you are better than you really are. Say so you you don't run the Barkley by running the very best you can run. You run the very best you can run in training. And then at the race, you have to find a place where that you're better than you are. Wow. Yeah. And due to the sleep deprivation aspect and be out at night, generally by yourself, you have to be by yourself on the last lap. <laughs> uh, if you're made it to five laps, then it's, you have to have taken the decision out of it that there is no decision to make that you are going to march forward. Yeah, that's, that's true. Now you do, you, you see people there that are, that have that mindset, but are in the end forced to quit. I mean, conditions make it impossible, but no, they don't make a decision. And I think that's really common to most ultras. If you're, if you have those races that have the, it's a hundred miler with a 50 mile drop down, you give people a drop down option. It's like, it's like 
you're not their friend helping them finish. You're an enemy giving, giving them a way out. <laughs> I'll run to 50 miles and then decide. Well, I'll save you trouble. I know what that decision is going to be. Okay, I like it. Uh, I like it. this is so fun because <laughs> the overarching perspective here is this is really different. Your perspective as a race director is quite different than most race directors, and this is uh, I think it's coming to light why this has become so famous and so well known. Uh, John Kelly, as we mentioned, is the last to finish in 2017, but prior to that, he started that fifth lap. Remember oh, that? Yeah, and he. He did it. He got up. He marched off. He made it like 400 meters and just did a face plant. But he walked out of that aid station, didn't he? Yeah. So that was a sign of something to come the following year. It's um, a lot of the people who finished have made it into the fifth loop and then and not made it and then come back to to complete the task. You you get incrementally stronger mentally and physically, and then in your your skill sets, you you keep refining yourself. Uh, so seeing the things that John has done, watching his growth from the first time he came to Barkley and he had his dad as a crew, and and he stopped after the third lap because his dad thought that he might die. We we try to tell him, you can be you can get really really tired, and you're not going to just die. It's 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 kind of frightening how much <laughs> abuse your body can take if you're not breaking or damaging something. You're not going to die. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, like you said, John went on to great things in the UK. He moved to the UK and he just won the, crushing the big roots out won there. Won the spine so. this year, which is a huge, huge race of of a like challenge level in uh, in the UK. Yep. Well, speaking of finishing, something that is very interesting become a tad controversial is I think, correct me again if I'm mistaken, that you said a woman will not be able to finish five <laughs> laps of the Barclay. Math is against Which them. now today's, it's it's the 11 or 12% rule. Is that what you're going is, by? Yeah. I mean, not rule, but 11 to 12% statistics. The difference between the women's world records and the men's world records at uh, just about every dif distance is that 11 or 12%. And if you take all the people that have finished the Barkley, uh, Brett Mounty one year, one time, I think, ran a fast enough time that someone could that someone could add 11 or 12% to it and still finish. It's going to take much more of an outlier from a, from a woman runner. Than it does from men. If it's the one percent of one percent of men can make it, then it's probably one percent of one percent of one percent of women. We do have this year signed up a truly exceptional field of women. We've taken. If you want to get into the Barkley, the best way to get in is to be an exceptionally talented female runner because we bump them. 
we have the the privilege of getting to do what we please so we we bump women of that caliber to the very top and uh, i think 10 there's 10 or 11 uh, roughly a quarter of the field this year is female and they're pretty much all exceptional so we will we will get yet another look. We would like to see some woman do it just to put this to bed. Cause I get, I get blamed for it. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want me to keep at Right. You don't want to keep getting asked about it. Uh, well, people blame you, you know, that's like that somehow this, this translates to a hostility to women that you just state the obvious. A woman hasn't been able to finish it. It's it's a course that requires a lot of speed and strength, and that doesn't really play to to the averages of your populations of male and female runners. There's a reason that we have gender divisions, and so if it, you know, you just you just gotta hope some woman can at least do it. But right now, we'd be happy to see just another fun run. There hasn't been one since 2014, I think. A fun, just a right. three looper by a woman. Right. Right. Well, this year, coming year, could be it. Well, thanks for sharing that. So, like you said, you can let in whoever the heck you want to let in. <laughs> and you're, if a woman really has the chops, you know, has that reputation, you're, you're, letting them in that's good to hear because there's only 40 spaces so that's an extreme, extremely tight field so it's just nice to hear yeah there's there's not 40 there's not 40 women in in the world that could probably give it an honest shot we we might have the bulk of the women who can and then other ones have been there so most of those 10 spots were were acquired the same way as normal they've they've worked their way up and in and then some of them are just some really exciting athletes that I'd like to see get a chance and we'll see what they can do. Maybe they'll get at least a we fun will. run. Thanks. <laughs> like you say, fun run is three laps. That's uh, yeah, that's worthy. That's highly worthy. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, a few people will get that done. People are proud to get one lap. Uh, one, once you've been there, I know they, they come a lot of times and they, and it's, it's five laps or nothing, five laps or nothing, five laps or I failed. And they get done and say that, that one, that one time around, that was a hell of a feat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they reset their expectations. <laughs> They they reset their their measuring stick for sure. All right. Well, thanks for the heads up. We'll be I can't say we'll be watching avidly. We'll be following avidly. Twenty twenty two will be a good year, hopefully, and hopefully no big snowstorms. <laughs> so nice, nice. The weather is probably well, going to be bad because. That time in the spring up at Frozen Head, it has its own, it has its own climate. So it's 
it'll be something. It always does mm-hmm. something. Well, it is a lot neat. It only does something. So sunny, windless, and dry is not standard. What well, is a La Nina year, which means the Southeast is scheduled to get, or not scheduled, but statistically might get a little more precipitation this winter. Than uh, so, <laughs> but we don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, well, I hate when it rains the whole well, time. I, <laughs> that's... I think the important thing about oh, the yeah, weather you're, is you're out there too. weather that's good in camp. Good weather to sit around a campfire is important. And then the the runners will have to deal with what they have to deal with. Yep. Gotcha. <laughs> well, here's something that's I've wondered about. Maybe some other people have as well. So 40 people times a dollar sixty is sixty four dollars plus you give out eleven dollar watches versus the New York City Marathon that's at capacity fifty three thousand people paying two hundred ninety six dollar entry fees that's fifteen million dollars versus sixty four dollars so as <laughs> how does this work I mean what's up I mean what am I missing here or Explain the mathematics, the economics of the Barclay Marathons. It's it's not a real solid business model, but <laughs> okay. but then there that's that's the application fee. So I get dollar sixties from more than just the forty people who enter it, and we don't refund them. Your, your application ah. fee is forfeit. Although there's people so incredibly cheap that they withhold the money pending getting entered not realizing of course that lowers really? their chance of getting entered the people who actually entered <laughs> we get things like a pair of socks or my white shirts um, something that I normally use and would otherwise have to go to the store because I don't like to come out of the woods if I can help it so it's it's maybe not financially the best maneuver, but I get stuff I need and, I, and it saves me having to go to a store. Gotcha. You have a lifetime supply of white shirts. <laughs> I hope so. I've got to find the box. It's time to put some new ones out. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. But obviously, it's continuing. How about those movies we talked about earlier? Someone was making money on those movies. Did you get a commission on at least that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, No, there's there's no. I I was actually surprised to find out people thought, well, you made money off the movie, right? No, I was just there. and, And they just did it. Um, I think Netflix probably made a lot of money off the movie. I don't think even the people who did the movie <laughs> got rich off of it. But it sure was a mm. damn lot of people saw it. Right. <laughs> a lot of people saw it. It became famous. Interesting. Well, hmm. hmm. I'm pondering this, so... At uh, New York City Marathon's fifteen million dollar revenue versus your, well, who knows, two hundred dollars. You know, it, 
at least. Okay. All right. It, it could be up to a hundred okay. sometimes, but it gives me great leeway to okay. do what I want to do and not worry about what anybody else thinks is just or fair <laughs> because huh. that's a good point. Hell? Good point. Now you paid a dollar sixty, dude. What do you expect? Oh, <laughs> uh, if people have a complaint, they're supposed to write it out on a scrap of paper, put it in an old sock, and bury it under a tree in their yard. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is again, again. I'm seeing the 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 method to the madness here. That was a very good op. I mean, you say everything dismissively with a bit of sense of humor. <laughs> that actually is a good point. Uh, at, at this entry fee. You can do what you want. If, if you can blow that conch shell whenever you want, and what are people going to complain about? They just paid a dollar sixty. <laughs> so I like it. This is uh, this is brilliant. The only part that makes me feel bad about the conch shell is the media, because we do allow some media up there, and and that is an a point I want to make in a second. But I feel bad because. They feel obligated to get their film or photograph or whatever of me blowing the conch. So unlike the runners who can wait until they hear the conch or wait till the person in the next tent who, who is a Confederate to hear the conch and bang on their bang on their tent, they sit out there and wait all night long. <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you see the oh my pictures or the <laughs> video of me blowing the conch, be aware someone went the extra mile to make sure they did that. And they say, "Can't you tell us when the start will be? We won't tell anyone. We're not runners." And no, the runners are really—they're a pretty smart, pretty smart group, and they'll figure out. If no media is up there waiting outside, that the conch is not blowing anytime soon. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What stories you have, Laz. This is, uh, like you say, you have, you've created something that is blindingly simple. And in that simplicity, it can blow up, right? And if you create something that's complicated, you're almost in a box as you have to figure it out. By doing something that is uber simple, then everything becomes possible. <laughs> so these stories are remarkable. Uh, and the media, because people, the, the natural inclination of the runners, because of the kind of people they are, is to say, ah, the media. But the media is not allowed out on the course. They're just there in camp. They, uh, one reason they do such a good job is that there's such limited filming opportunities that they're like Alfred Hitchcock. They have to tell the story without displaying the blood and guts. And, uh, one thing that the Barkley, I like to think it operates as it's in this natural area and natural areas are, very few. All the places I used to go backpacking as a kid, they're either a park or they're gone. You hate that it's a park with all the rules and restrictions, but if it wasn't a park with the rules and restrictions, it would be already destroyed. 
there's always pressure on those resources. I mean, Frozen Head has 80,000 acres. That are, well, within the park park, probably 30,000 acres of timber that someone would like to cut. And the remaining coal and, and mineral uh, mineral uh, resources that are inside. So there's always someone who wants access to that stuff and it needs a constituency. You can't open it up to everyone who wants to come. We, you know, we could put thousands of people out there every year, but it would be it would be impossible and it would destroy the wilderness. Wilderness is not for everybody and it can't contain everybody. So the media is there to tell the story of what the possibility is. And I think to, well, obviously to every person, this concept of a, of a man thrown alone into the wilderness to live or die, survive on his, on his own merits, it has an appeal. And so all these people that follow the Barkley from home that have no, no, no dream, no desire to ever actually do something like that themselves. They see a value in the wilderness. And we need every place to survive needs a constituency. The people that try to preserve the wilderness by pushing everyone away, uh, they're they're not they're not going about it the right way because if you don't have a constituency eventually someone comes in and says hey look at all that oh, how many board feet of timber are in frozen head it's not going to ruin it if we cut all the big trees and take them out it'll recover they'll grow back but i i don't know if, if that's a coherent enough thought but but you see yourself you do anything well, really worthwhile with a race like the Barkley or any of the really rugged races is try to convey the, that there's a value in wilderness and personalize it to people that are not actual direct users. Gotcha. Good point. Well, that is. John Muir, <laughs> right? And I appreciate what you said, that sometimes people get in a very strongly restrictionist approach, lock it up, but that's bad tactics because you need a constituency. And that's what John Muir literally did you know, over a century ago when he created the Sierra Club. He had this two-part process. One, take people out into the wilderness. Two, they come back and write letters to the congressmen to protect it. But if you don't have one, then two doesn't happen. Yeah, and the, you know the we're we're lucky because that the park has responsibility for the resource of the natural area, which is, you know, it's not now and hopefully never will be. Have trails cut into it and and uh, vehicle access so that the and uh, you know the handicapped ramp to get to the back corners of the park. But, and we can't possibly get in everybody who wants to go, but we try to pick people that will get value from the experience and, and, and also make good use of their spot. And then the media's job may be the most important there because the, they share it. 
and and let people that sit at home and watch TV see value in the wilderness. Gotcha. Nice. I appreciate that. Well, continue. Thank you for that insight. Again, I think an overarching theme here is there's definitely method to the madness. <laughs> and switching into the Backyard Ultra. I started this podcast by saying you have changed the sport of ultra running forever. I think more than anyone else. There's obviously bigger races, more famous races, media, faster runners, et cetera, et cetera. But what you have done, the sport of ultra running will never be the same again. Barkley, the way you've boiled down some human spirit aspects into this clear test is one example. But in my opinion, the Backyard Ultra could be your lasting legacy. This is the same type of situation in that what is really going on? Is this a we race, start, whoever gets to the finish line first wins, and then you get your age group awards and you get your finishing medals and da 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 no, 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 no. This is where everybody is a DNF except one person. So again, you've changed the game completely. So help us out on the Backyard Ultra. I'll ask you the same question. What is the Backyard Ultra? It's uh, a backyard race. You you run 4.1667 mile course. Every hour on the hour, you have to be at the starting line and you have to go when the bell, you have to answer the bell. When the bell rings, you have to go. And you're on your own to complete that loop because who the hell needs aid in four miles? It's it's relatively easy to run <laughs> in an hour, but the hours keep adding up, and you have all all kinds of things that that are different about it. I've actually been asking myself, did we stumble across a whole new running sport? Because it, it's fundamentally different than other races it's not like the time races where you're trying to get a maximum distance in a time or the distance races where you're trying to cover distance in the greatest speed it's a contest of the will to win how many times can you walk to the starting line the the there's only there's one strategy that always is determines the winner walking to the, going up to the starting line until you're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just like the Barkley, you, you boiled down sometimes complex uh, strategies and tactics into something that is just uber simple. And thus it, it opens up. You told, I, I, you didn't tell me personally, but you said one time it's not, one by you know, the fastest person, the best athlete, and you don't quit when you can't go on anymore. You quit when you think you can't win. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a lot of ways it hasn't turned out exactly the way I expected. The, the format was devised because we have this farm and we wanted to have an ultra on it. We tried a standard time time run you know set up laps on trails around this farm and the adjoining farms and you just the restriction of space 
you and resources. You say, well, we've all we've got is 140 acres, and we have the resources of an average American family. How can we have a really good altar for our friends? And we put the format together, and then I didn't know if if uh, <laughs> didn't know if there'd be enough people to really want to do it. The first the first year, there were only 47 people in the world that did a backyard in one race, and it's that's been that was in 2011 or 2012. 2011, I believe. Now 2012. So we've been 10 years and now there's 300 and something backyard ultras in 65 countries. And you'll probably have 25 or 30,000 people at least that run a backyard because they're fun and it's simple and easy. It's a nice grassroots race. I think, uh, well, thanks for that origin story because I think me and maybe other people are are trying to think, well, who is this guy? Is he just this brilliant (laughs) genius who sees into the future or uh, because I think this is going to be a lasting legacy. I think you have stumbled onto a different type of sport with the backyard ultra. It's there's a number of things. One is, of course, the athletes. It has its people that are this is what they're good at. You're really good athletes. Uh, seems to be a really big crossover with like the 24-hour runners. The world-class 24-hour runners are mostly good at backyard. Some of them are not good at backyard at all. And then the guy who is just tough. You've you've been around long enough. You know those guys. They're they, they don't win races. They're not big stars because they're simply not fast enough. You run a race and the, and the really fast guys run off and they're not going to ever catch them. But they're just tough as nails and competitive. They do really good at backyard because you can't get rid of them. They're there every hour. <laughs> they're back with you. And... The other part, which was totally unexpected, is women win backyard ultras in a slightly greater percentage than the number of women who participate. Women do extremely well. You've removed the strength and the speed. I mean, it, it's something you should anticipate if you, if you think about the, the way that the race is laid out. So I think, especially from talking to the female athletes, that for some of them it is, yeah, this is a release. Here is a sport where I don't need a women's tee. I don't need a women's women's, uh, group. I can run just to win, period. And that, that is appealing to them. And you get to see took a, a few years to really manifest itself. There was like an invisible barrier. We would run at that Biggs backyard every year. You would have women among those last few. But I, and I actually heard one of them verbalize it to their, to their crew. They'd gotten down where there was only four people left. And, and she says, those men will never let me win. So no, you have to change your picture in your mind to I'm not letting those men win. 
But once you <laughs> once it's like finishing the Barclay, once women started winning and they realized they could, then Katie barred the door. And so last year we in 2020 when we were circumstances forced something on that we're going to continue because it works good. We had satellite national championships all around the world, 21 countries that were between restrictions and able to hold a race had national championships. Seven of the 21 national champions were women. And they weren't, and we're not talking about just the, you know, Mauritius or some tiny country, tiny country. We're talking about the Russian champion was a woman. The German champion was a woman. The American champion was a woman. The Canadian champion was a woman. They won outright. So it's really nice. Now the people that have trouble are the ones who are so committed to having a women's division that they have one, even though it serves no purpose. And and what (laughs) happens is I have yet to, there is yet to be, to my knowledge, any race with a women's division won outright by a woman. It's, it's just like, because they weren't motivated, just like the 50 mile, uh, drop down in a hundred that I say is not a favor to the runners. It's, it's, a attack on their ability to finish that when you get in the, mm. into the deep part of a backyard, there's some discomfort involved. And whenever <laughs> yeah. you're working with discomfort, you're a, you know, I know you've been around the, the block a few times. It's between your mind and you, and you, you're, the part of your mind that knows what you set out to do that you want to do it. And the part of your mind that's this saying, here's a good reason to quit. Here's a reason it makes sense. Here's this, here's that. And putting in a women's division is really handicapping the women. It's restricting their ability to get out there and just win. So I'm opposed to gender divisions in backyards. The, the numbers are significant enough now that you can see they can win. Don't, don't yeah. take that away. Well, you described, uh, <laughs> of course, don't take it away. Well, you, of course, Maggie Guterrell, and then you mentioned the 1% of the 1% of the 1% might go by the name of Courtney DeWalter, who is both fast and tough as nails. So that's very interesting. <clears throat> the playing field has become equalized, so to speak, there. Seven of 21 national championships won by women. The other aspect about the backyard ultras, which I find is quite fascinating, besides the fact that everybody but one is a DNF, in terms of getting to a big number, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? Yes. If you have one standout, you don't go anywhere. Because as soon as you're the last person showing up, that's the last lap you you've timed out. You, you don't keep going. So that's a, it's an amazing how this simple little plan you've created blows up into this wide range of possibilities. <laughs> I, I've always felt like that was one of the more important parts of the, of the whole thing, because in every sport and I'm, 
I come from a sports-oriented family, and I'm kind of a sports-oriented guy. You can never be better than the people you play. Uh, if you, you see teams teams that line up all week opponents, uh, wedge their way into weak divisions, and or athletes that that <laughs> we used to call it cherry picking. I don't know what they call it now. They hunt around for races with weak fields so they can win. You can never be as good as you can be. You can only be as good as your opponent makes you. And the backyard is the only sport I know of that codifies that. <laughs> when, you're, when your last opponent is gone, you're done. That's, it doesn't matter if you have 85 yards in you. Uh, matter of fact, the first two people that went 80, that went 81 and 80 in England last year, if either one of them had not been there, the other one would have won in 38, 38 yards. So Laps. they were, yeah. So they were utterly dependent on each other. And the athletes know that. So you at once want to see your opponents do well. And at the same time, you, you have to, you have to break them to win. <laughs> Right. What a mental game. <laughs> I mean, like you say, you got to show up that starting line, maybe with even a smile on your face. <laughs> it's uh, there. There's a whole lot hmm. of interesting hmm. things to it. The, the attachment that people develop when they're out there, especially when the ones where that they go for 19 or 20 or 40 hours is the only two runners. <laughs> they become so tight and You'll see one of them say, I'm done. The other one will say, no, you can go on. You can do one more. And then you can see the realization <laughs> dawning in their mind that, no, if he doesn't quit, <laughs> this never ends. <laughs> <laughs> this never ends. There's, yeah, he's in 100. 100 miles is really long. At least, okay, there's the finish line. You know, you can say, okay. You know, 14 miles to go. Okay, eight miles to go. But in a backyard ultra, you can't say that. No. You're, the tricks that your mind plays don't work at all. I, that's, I always, of course, the idea was in my head from a long time ago when I was young. Because when I could run, this would have been a format that was well suited to me. But I have to wonder how I would have dealt with the part of not knowing when it ends. Because I was, it was a particular strong suit in, in any of the things that I do, even doing the transcons now, to know where the finish line is. It doesn't matter if it's you know, 11 more hours or 11 more miles. I can put my mind on that finish and endure a lot just to get there because you're just, just only going to take so long. And when it's over, it'll be like it never happened, except it's just a memory. But when when you know that the race could go another, it could go one more hour, or it could easily go 24 more hours. <laughs> <laughs> or 36. The, the longest time right. two, there's no. been two people's like 43 hours. 
So you get down to the last two. With just two. Just two people. Oh, and my you God. know, it could go two more days. If this, if this <laughs> stubborn bastard doesn't. Uh, Harvey, Harvey yeah. said an interesting wow. thing. Yeah, the, the mentality is. During bigs. And then this is something I don't think. I've not told anyone this, this story. But the runner's. Their minds are so fried at that point, and they they get things stuck in their head that they worry about. Uh, the year Johan was worried that that Jeremy Evil was able to sleep while running, and therefore he would never be able to beat him. And then this year, Harvey <laughs> said, "He says I'm a little concerned about the other two guys." He said that they're both hurt, you know, to in the way that you're, you know, you're not going to go to a hospital, but you're hurt and things are bothering you. He said, I'm afraid they don't have it in their makeup to go ahead and concede at some point. Just in his mind, you know, I'm going to go until they give up. But what if they, what if they break instead? <laughs> Wow, he, he actually cared about that's that's the mindset you have to have to win though is that <laughs> I'm going until no one else can go when that when that wow well uh, you mentioned when that doubt gets in your mind when you start to think I can't win there's no point going on it hurts so bad why would you keep doing it if you're not gonna if you know you're not gonna win? <laughs> that comes back to your quote. People don't stop when they can't keep running. They stop when they think they can't win. <laughs> hmm. Well, speaking of you, in terms of this would have been in your wheelhouse back in the day. Well, it still is because uh, the Bigs Backyard just took place a few weeks ago. And you can't go to sleep until they go to sleep. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, you're still in it, aren't you? You're sitting there. You know, counting, you know, sounding little horn uh, 15 seconds before the hour. And uh, you got to keep doing that every hour, too. As long as I can. The race could go on without me. Uh, but now it's just a point of pride that I, I know I can do 85 hours. <laughs> so we will see if I can master run. Surely if a runner can run that four miles every hour. And answer the bell that I can just do do all the other stuff that I do during the race, and I can still answer the bell. It's a I want to I want to outlast the runners as long as possible. They're not making it easier <laughs> though. Eighty five hours was a long time, and to, and to be honest, I thought once that I had the that I had missed an hour. When I when I took the big sleep, the fifteen minute one, I uh, came out and I I thought that I had, you know, I went to sleep and then got woke up and I had been setting my alarm for some reason. I didn't wake with my alarm and got woken up, and so it was closer to the time that I had to be out there than than I normally allowed. 
And so I rushed around and got out there. And then I thought, I, if I missed the alarm, I must have missed an hour. So I asked them, well, who, rang, who rang the bell the hour I wasn't here? And they said, no one, you've rung the bell every hour. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you, your fates are inextricably linked. It's a, uh, it's yeah. a big challenge, but I'm really, uh, you can improve the sleep aspect. I, I didn't think you could train for sleep. I thought you were either just born with a need for a lot of sleep or a need for very little, but you can get better at going for days and days on short naps. Okay. All right. Not, well, you should know. Should you, you, a, you, you're the world-leading expert. I, I don't know if that should be a life goal for anyone, but it, it's it's there. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to ask you, as I did on vis-a-vis -vis Barclay, like you said, there's this has become a worldwide phenomena. You had you live stream championships, twenty five to thirty thousand people are going to be doing it. So, pardon me for being asking a personal question, but do you get a commission from this? I, I kind of have to stay with this theme of you know what's in it for you, buddy. The back, the backyard ultra. Well, the, the joy of most things is the joy of doing them. Um, you, you just, uh, for, for like the Barkley, for what it gives the people who run it is the real value in it. Um, to your job as a race director, in my mind, is to provide a venue for people to find greatness in themselves. It's not really about you. It's about them. And you're just a, some people would say an enabler, <laughs> but there's probably a, a more, a less pejorative term for it, but you're setting up opportunities for people to really shine so you want to get you want to set the stage for them and let them take the stage and then step back. Uh, the with the backyard, it started out just a a thing to so people could that I knew could come to the house and we could enjoy the farm and enjoy my trails that I've built out there. When you see the so, become aware of the potential because almost immediately people were saying, Hey, I want to put on a race just like that. Do you mind? Well, no, I don't mind. It's just an idea. You can't patent an idea, but we have trademarked it and we're trying to make a brand out of backyard because I see the things it could be. It doesn't need to be necessarily just monetized. So we are seeking, we've got to put together an organization and right now with all volunteer people, we've got these 300 and something races. We've set up championship setups, 
things for the athletes so that that you have the pleasure of saying this is being run the way it should be run. Now, eventually you have to have uh, some income for the people that are spending big amounts of time on it because you have to justify the time. I mean, the, the, all the time I spend on the races I put on, I'm, I'm not some angel that does it for nothing. You look at it and say, you have to have some return to justify the time you spend, if for no other reason, because opportunity costs. And um, so we're looking for a sponsor, and we we are having serious talks with someone right now about sponsoring the organization. And then in return, all you do is give your, give them really high visibility. I mean, I would shamelessly promote getting the name of our sponsor out there because if they sponsor the organization, then right now, it costs nothing for a race to be affiliated. It costs nothing for a runner to be uh, part of the backyard athletes that are vying to make it into the national championships and the world championships. And that's, that's the way I want to keep it. And then we have people that, oh, they put a, there's lots and lots of these races really are backyards, just like us people that have the race, they have 25 runners, they they set up out in the courtyard behind their house, run out the gate, do, do their loop on city streets and parks near their house. And, and uh, you know, if you, but yet they can be a, a part of the larger organization and spread the word people can travel from here to there and run races. So the joy of doing is a big part. I like to think backyard would be a valuable property at some point, but not for me. I'm I'm, I'm too old that it's ever going to have any real return for me. The joy is, is putting something together after complaining about how these athletic organizations are run all your life to have an opportunity <laughs> to put one together and say, this is how it should be done. Wow. Well, I started this podcast by saying you've changed the sport of ultra running forever, and you have described that. <laughs> this is this is good. I mean, this is I, I wrote down like twenty one liners here. I could have written down thirty or forty, but that's good. And I'm very pleased personally to hear that you, you're setting up some sort of organization for the backyard ultras. And like you say, you can't. It's unsustainable to have many people volunteering their time. <laughs> in order to have the organization work and provide the services to the participants, there has to be a little support involved. So that's my opinion. So thank you for taking that into account. Yeah, well, it has to be. I guess I could plug the www.backyardultra.com. And you can look up okay. everyone, all the races worldwide that are affiliated are listed in there. And we're working on getting that catalog in good shape where you, you want to travel to Malta. 
there's a backyard ultra in Malta and you could go over there and tack that on the, the front end of your trip and spend a, spend a day with people that are like natives to Malta. Uh, having all of the social aspects of the backyard, which is one of the really strong things every hour you're together, the fastest runner and the slowest runner, they can get into conversation Spend a few hours running together. It doesn't matter, you know, as long as you're in within the hour. So you see an ability for people of all ability levels within the race to to enjoy the social aspects of running instead of just the guy that's a quarter mile in front of you and, and the guy that's a quarter mile behind you. And Right. Good point. So, and then we rank everyone that gets 24 hours or more, which is a 24 hour hundred, which I've always, I think it's kind of the three hour marathon of, of ultras more. I don't know that they're necessarily equivalent, but mentally the 24 hour 100 is an achievement. So we rank for the year, everyone who has done a 24 hour backyard and there's, um, the year the the comp- competitive year starts August the sixteenth, and since then there's already been got to be close to four hundred people now worldwide that have done twenty four hours. So they covered a hundred miles in a wow. day. Yeah, right. So the backyard ultras are a thing. Big time. It's it's become a thing. You just sit back and look at it sometimes and think, this has got to be like a fantasy because I'm just an old hillbilly who lives in the woods. And it's it's a lot of gall to believe that I could have something where people are competing all over the world and, and you have champ- national championships and world championships and all this stuff going on. I, I'll wake up one day and it won't be true. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Very, very self-effacing effacing attitude. That's uh, in a way having such a simple, open attitude maybe is what's allowed some of these brilliant ideas to come forward. We've mentioned what's been in the past, but as I always do, what is next? I have to ask you this. <laughs> Uh, three years ago, 2018, you walked across the country, which is, wow, that's that's quite an achievement right there. But so in part of the what's next, how is your health? I mean, are you going to keep hanging in there? I mean, what, what can you tell us about what's next for Lazarus Lake? I don't know. I don't get younger and, not, and things don't get better. <laughs> Matter of fact, you find out, and I, I know you've probably are aware of this when you're 18 and you you do any damn thing you want to do and you you get banged up a little bit but you just heal and then when you're 40 and 50 you find out none of that shit really healed <laughs> that it, it's just been biding its time to come back as the achy shoulder or the <laughs> the the nagging pain in your back or some, some other manifestation. So 
and then after that, of course, your your career is on the downhill trend. But I feel like I'm in good health. I good. I I'm happy and excited about doing things. And as long as there's new goals, I I've been been invited to a number of backyard ultras, in particular in different parts of the world. And that was where it dawned on me, what an incredible way to travel, because you go there, you're with people from there. It's a whole different way of visiting than getting on the tour bus and having a guy with a microphone tell you what you're looking at. And then the other best part is you say, what are cool places to go? What's, what's, what's the, you know, what's the local food? What's the big thing that, that people do good here? What's, and when you actually go see a place, you see it in a whole different way. You you see it the way people that live there see it, the things that, that they like to do. So I've been enjoying that. I've got another route for a transcon that I want to do so bad. I just got to somehow squeeze out about five months to do it because I'm never going to do one again as fast as I did the first one. Ah, so you're planning on doing another walk across the country, but via a different route. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's, There's too much to see to go the same way again. And... I made a lot of mistakes in my planning and preparation, my uh, route layout. I learned a lot. I need to put that to use or what a waste it would be. <laughs> wow. Nice. This is, you, you are embodying uh, your spirit as a race director for yourself, learning, growing, and continuing to challenge yourself. That's really uh, enlightening to hear. It, yeah, well, it's, it's, you you have two choices. You can set goals and pursue them, or you can sit around you know sit around the house and wait to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I'm hoping death has to yeah. track me down. <laughs> yeah, and you'll be uh, out in the woods, and so you might be hard to find. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I, on that note, I very much appreciate this conversation. This I've learned quite a bit. And I think my proposition that you are one of the most creative people in the entire sport has been proven quite correct here. So thank you for giving us the backstory on how this has all come to pass. It, uh, it's probably some form of autism. <laughs> That makes me just not able to follow along and do follow the the design path. You just <laughs> do things your own way because you're not smart enough to remember how other people have already solved those problems. <laughs> well, very self-effacing attitude. I think it's probably a little bit more than that. And so I'm going to say on behalf of everyone listening and everyone who's participated in your events and learned from them, thank you. 
thank you. You've contributed a terrific amount to this sport and to this community, if you will. You're a pillar of the community, and I want to thank you very much for being a part of it and your contributions. Well, I, I appreciate that. I uh, have gotten a lot more from all the people that have come and run the races and, and uh, from the community itself than, than I'll ever be able to give back. But that's that's life. You can't give more than you receive. People should try it sometime. No matter how much you, if you decide to, to give, you keep getting back and more than you give out. So it's the community has been very good to me and, and um, I've become a better person from seeing all of the things that people that come to my races can do and have done and and you know elevated just by being there because i certainly never never could achieve some of these things myself thank you again very much and uh we'll see what happens at this year's barkley well at least there will hopefully be a woman fun run i think that there have been in all the years of Barkley, there's been 15 finishers and everyone's trying to be 16. In all the years of Barkley, there's been 11 fun runs by women and only by five unique individuals. So the women with the fun run have a much worse track record than the men with the 100. So we've got the women that are going to change this and put this to bed.